want to do a little refresher this morning to make sure that we're all on the same page um, as, we, as we look at another aspect of the games that evil plays in our story and in the creation story. And remember, I, I think it's important to do this because so much of our understanding of who we are in relationship to God, who we are in relationship to each other and the rest of creation comes from our understanding of in the beginning of Genesis 1 and 2 and, and 3. So much of, of Christianity, so much of different denominations and what they believe about who we are and, and, and how we sit or where we stand in the world comes from these first three chapters of Genesis. So if we get this wrong, it stands to reason that everything that comes after that is gonna be a, a little off. So it's important for us to go back and go, okay, wh what's going on in the beginning when we read this story in Genesis uh, 1, 2, and 3. So remember that the first time anybody hears the creation story from God, uh, Israel hears it in the desert after 250 years of slavery in Egypt. 250 years of slavery where they were treated like, like animals, like property to be used and, and abused and then discarded at will. That's how Israel felt about themselves as individuals, and they weren't even a nation. They were just people. They were just cattle. Um, that's how they felt. And now all of a sudden, this God shows up in the, in the world, shows up on the scene. He frees them from Egypt. They're in the desert. Um, they are vulnerable. They're afraid. Um, and and, and they've, got, they've got nothing to base anything, like their future on. They, like, they don't understand what's going on. And I think sometimes I have been hard on them for the situation. And then I have to step back and go, okay, wait a minute. If, if I and my family had been enslaved for 250 years, and then all of a sudden we were free, I, I wouldn't know where to go or what to do either. Like, like it changes the way you think. And so all of a sudden, they're out in the desert. They, they're not a nation. They don't know what's going on. This God just showed up out of nowhere and brought them out of slavery. And then they hear this, that God actually created them with purpose, with passion, and with a plan for their lives and their future. They're not beasts. I've got something better for you in, in life. So it totally changes their uh, outlook, their, the, who they think they are in, in the world. It's this crazy thing. And so when we look down through Genesis 1, we see this progression. So God uh, creates the world and he separates the land from the sea. And then he begins to fill each of these spaces. He fills the heavens, he fills the water, and he fills the land. He fills with birds, with sea creatures, and with animals. At the end of each of those creation days, he tells each of these um, sets of animals that he's created the same thing. Be fruitful and multiply. I, I said it this way um, last week, a, a little more crudely. Um, I, I said, survive in advance. Like that, that's the that's the word that he gave to each of these different creatures and species and, and whatever. Survive in advance. Um, fill the earth. Like, do, like make babies. Do, move on. Procreate. Fill the earth. This is what your role is. And, and so then at the end of the sixth day of creation, he creates humanity. And guess what he says? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Make more 
humans and then do what you do. But then he does something. He changes the script from humanity from all the other things that he'd created. He said, be fruitful and multiply and then rule over all the other creation I made. Rule over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. So he's like, yes, you're beasts. You have some connection to, to beasts, to the other things that I had created, but you're better because I'm giving you this role to rule over all of the rest of my creation. The Bible Project says it kind of like this, that God created humanity in his image as partners in caring for the world that he just created. So uh, we might think about it like we're um, little gods. So God created everything, And then he puts us on the planet and he says, okay, I want you to act in my place to the rest of the world and everything else that I've created. I'm I'm making you kind of little gods. You have power over all the other beasts of the field and the birds of the air and all that stuff. I'm giving you that, that power. So we have this partnership with God, with each other, in order to rule the rest of um, creation. And, And what he said there was, it's very good. He gets to the end of Genesis 1, and he says it's very good. And, and we often like to think of it in terms of, like, perfection. That's how we think of things. It was perfect. It was excellent. And, and really, that's not a, a, the, the right understanding for the, for the word. The, the words used in Hebrew is meod good. It's much good. It's like, like very good. And, and what that really conveys is that when God created everything and he created humanity and he set them above everything else that he had created, he stepped back and he looked at all the systems and the creatures and the things that, and it was all working the way he intended it to. And he says, this is exactly what I pictured. This is very good. This is exactly what I wanted it to be. It's exactly the way I wanted it to function, exactly the way I wanted it to work out. That's what he's saying. And so in Genesis 1, we have this um, story of creation. And it's not a scientific primer. It really, like Genesis 1 is actually a, a, a poem. We talked about this earlier in the year. Genesis 1 is actually a, a poem. It's called a chiasm. And it's not supposed to be like, this is how God did it, A, B, C, D. It's supposed to let us know that God created everything, but do it in a way that we can understand some really important things about who we are and about who God is. So that's Genesis 1. And then we step into Genesis chapter two. And in Genesis chapter two, um, God gives Moses kind of a magnifying glass. They're out in the desert. Moses goes into the tent of meeting. God is giving him this information. I think that's how it worked. And they kind of take a magnifying glass on creation day number six. So when God created humanity. So in Genesis chapter one, we get like this overview. It's not super specific. It's this overview of God created everything. It's this day he created the beasts of the field, but we're not told exactly how he does all of that. We're just told that he did it. So in, in, in day two, or in Genesis two, like God goes, okay, I told you that I created humanity and I set them above all the other beasts that I had uh, created. I gave them this special place over creation. Now let's talk about that a little more. I got some more to share with you about humanity and Adam and Eve in, in chapter two. And so he tells us in more detail what happened when he created man. And there's some very important things to catch in, in Genesis chapter two. I think the first thing we wanna look at is the intimate relationship that Adam shares with Eve. It is unlike uh, any other beast, any other creation that, that God has. And so um, it's, it's up on the screen there for you. And I wanna just read 23 and then kind of stop there. 
Though um, God, it's not good for man to be alone. This is what God says. We talked about it last week. I'm going to create a, a helper for him, somebody that's suitable for him to do what I've asked him to do, which is fill the earth and subdue it and then rule over all the other beasts of the field. So he puts Adam to sleep. He takes a rib and some flesh and some uh, muscle and some veins and stuff. And then he creates Eve and Adam kind of wakes up and then here's what he says. He's just like, okay, he wakes up and he sees Eve. She's naked, by the way. <gasps> this is what he says. You could just hear, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Oh my goodness, she looks like me. Remember, Adam just went through all the beasts of the field, every animal that God had created, and he named them, and he, and he couldn't find anybody that he could do life with. And then he sees Eve, and he says, oh my goodness, she looks like me. She's a, we're the same, we're the same. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, the Hebrew word is isha, um, because she was taken out of man, the Hebrew word is ish. She shall be isha because she was taken out of man. What we see there is, um, that I, I told you, I, I think maybe in February, we did the relationship series. I said, this whole thing about men and, and women, and, and we're like, like, you complete me. This is not, not true. We, we, are, we are not completed by somebody else. We may, be, we, we may fit together well, we may cooperate, but this, you, you don't need another, you don't need a wife, you don't need a husband to complete you. That's not what I think he's saying. What happens though is, is Adam wakes up and he sees Eve and, and he says, here is somebody that I can do life with. Here is somebody who shares the same passion and the same purpose that God has given me. And together we can accomplish what God has called us to do on the planet. So it's a different kind of thing. I finally have somebody that I can share the burden of ruling over this incredible planet with me. That's what Adam is saying. And, and, and we feel that, right? You find that person and you're like, oh my goodness, I, like I have to spend the rest of my life with you. You help me do the things that God has called me to do. And that's what husbands and wives are supposed to do. We're supposed to help each other be the person that God has called us to be. And I think that is a cool thing that happens here with Adam and, and Eve. And so remember, God is trying to undo 250 years of brutal slavery in which Israel learned that they were less than human. In fact, I would say Israel learned that they were less than any other beast. Because if you remember, uh, what were the Egyptians' gods formed after? Animals. All of the Egyptian gods were based off of animals. So an Egyptian might not kill a cat or a dog or a cow because they worshiped those animals, but they darn sure could kill a Hebrew. And it make no difference to them. And so for the Israelite people, they really believed that they were less than any other creature that God had created. And so God brings them out of that and he wants them to understand that not only do they have purpose, not only does God have a plan for them, but he has an expectation for them as his image bearers. How they were to, how they were to act and how they were to function, not like the other beasts that they thought they were, but as something better. And I think that really starts with the relationship between Adam uh, and Eve, between husband and wife, between man and woman, between Ish and Isha. They're, they're together. Together they make this whole thing. And so you, you think about it this way. God talks about the creation of Adam and Eve. He says, let us make 
man or humankind in our image, in our likeness. He's talking to the Spirit and the Son. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're in partnership. They're together. They, they share everything. There are no secrets between them. And they said, let's create another being, humanity, that can be open and in relationship with each other the way we are with each other. And then we can be in relationship with them. And so there's this beautiful picture of, of, of God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Spirit, in men and, and women, and in particular, husbands and, and wives. There's this relationship between us like there is this relationship in heaven. And, and so um, the expectation for men and women, husbands and wives, is different than it is for the rest of the beasts. Survive in advance. I don't care. When, when I'm ready, when the urge to procreate comes, it doesn't matter. Whoever is closest, that's who I'll pick. And they go. And, and God says, no, it's supposed to be different for humanity. God had a different plan for humanity than he had for the animal kingdom. We are not to be ruled by our passions and desires like the rest of beasts, but we are to rule over our passions and desires as directed by God. Because we're not beasts, we're better. And so the relationship between man and woman, between Adam and Eve, husband and wife, is supposed to be a picture of the relationship between God, the Son, and the, and the Spirit. And, and, and so, um, so there's this really weird thing that happens. So we get verse 23, and Adam wakes up and he sees Eve, and he's like, holy cow, you are amazing. You, 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 are, you are like me, and, and like, I love you. Like, you are you are, like, you're crazy, beautiful. I really like you. That's the idea that we get in verse 23. Adam is like head over heels for her. You and I together are going to be able to accomplish all the things that God has laid out for us. And then we get to verse 24. And verse, like I'm, so I'm 52. I've been in church since the day I was, was born. I've been a pastor for 26 or 27. I don't know. I lose count. Um, a long time. And, um, and, and I have always struggled with these two verses. Because in verse 23, there's this very passionate exclamation by, by Adam. He sees her and he's overcome with emotion when he sees Eve. And then we get, and then we get, um, this second thing in verse 24. Therefore, like it's, like it's very official. There's this overflowing of emotion and then, and then it's commentary. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Left turn, right? In the, like, this, like these two things don't seem to go together very well to me at all. This overwhelming emotion in verse 23 and then this completely abstract commentary about how men and women leave. By the way, who was on the planet at this point? Adam and Eve. Did they have parents? No, is the Bible answer for that. No. So where does this even come from? A man will leave his father and mother, and Adam's like, what's a father and mother? I don't know, who am I supposed to leave in order to be united with my, this came to me this week. And, and if it's correct, it's from the Holy Spirit and he just told me, because I've been trying to figure this out for a very long time. If I'm wrong, I'm just an idiot. Uh, but, but I may be right. And so just, just hear me out. I think it's entirely possible that there is a change in status 
in the relationship between Adam and Eve from verse 23 to verse 24. I think time has passed. I don't think this is exact. I don't think this is like Adam wakes up and he sees her and he goes, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman. Oh, taken out of man. Woohoo! For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife and the two will become. I think there's time. I think what happened is Adam woke up and he saw her and he said, wow. And they developed a relationship and they became united and became one. I think they, I think they were married. I, I think they were married in part because there wasn't anybody else. <laughs> like you kind of had to pick, had, kind of had to pick each other. <laughs> You're the best I can do right now. <laughs> okay, let's go. Let's make this work. Um, but so, I, so it was, there was a little bit of convenience there, but doesn't, it makes more sense to me to say, okay, Adam sees her, they develop this relationship, and then they're united, they're, they're, they're married. And by the way, in, in God's eyes, marriage happens at consummation. That'll blow your mind. Uh, so Adam and Eve perhaps are married. And then all of a sudden we get this commentary. Okay, Adam sees her, he falls madly in love with her, they get married, and it's for this reason that a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Because together they're, they're, they're one. They've become one. They're separate now from mom and dad and from the family. They're their own thing. It makes a whole lot more sense to me the way it reads here if there's a status change in their, if they've changed their Facebook status from it's complicated to in a relationship. So this is what happened. Maybe this is what happens in verse 23. Now, it doesn't get better, um, what, what, ha- what we read in verse 25. I think, it, I think it, in many cases, gets a little worse. Because what we read in the very next verse of 25 is this. That Adam and Eve, the, the man and the woman, their man and his wife, were both naked, and they felt no shame. Ah. If you were reading any other book, you would have to close it and look at the cover and go, is this magic, Mike? Or if you're older, is this a harlequin? Like, wh- like what is going on? <laughs> What in the world difference does that make that they were naked and they felt no shame? It's completely out of left field. It makes no sense to the story when you're just reading it. And the only reason we don't go, what is going on here is is because it's the Bible. And we're not supposed to say that when it's the Bible. We're supposed to go, oh, well, something must, very holy must have been going on here. <laughs> this, must, this is very holy. No, they're not naked like dirty naked. They're naked like, like how, how do you, how do you, change that up. I don't know. But we're, t- so because it's there, it must be important, right? And so, so we got to, we got to look like these two statements, a man will leave his father and mother and be united his wife and become one flesh. And, and they were naked and they felt no shame. They, com- they, they seem completely out of place. Adam meets Eve. He's overcome with emotion. And, and then, and then we just dropped in this sentence about leaving your father and mother. And, and then this thing about being naked, and I just don't understand it. It's pointless, it seems absurd, and it seems to have no bearing on the statement unless there is a status change between verse 23 and verse 24. Adam and Eve are married, and now they've set the precedent for everybody else. This is what you do now. It happened to Adam and Eve, and now everybody, you uh, find that person, and you leave your father and mother, and you are united to your wife, and then what kind of relationship are you supposed to have with your mother? You're to be one flesh. How do we express that? Well, they're naked and they felt no shame. Uh, let, me, let me explain that a little more um, 
this way. Um, for uh, centuries, no one had a Bible to read from. I mean, think about that. We, we always have had the Bible. We always know what's going to go back to the Bible and read these stories. But for centuries, nobody had the Bible. There was no way to write it down. There was no, nothing to read it off of. And so the stories of creation and the stories of the Old Testament were handed down from generation to generation verbally, not physically. And, and so um, when you're hearing the story of Genesis 1-2, and three, if you are a young child and you're sitting at the feet of your father or probably more likely your grandfather and you're hearing the story of creation, they say, look, uh, Adam, Eve is created from, from Adam and he wakes up and he makes this exclamation and it's this reason, the status change, it's this reason that a man and woman leave their father and mother and they cleave to one another, united to one another and they're, and they're naked and they feel no shame and this is how a young Hebrew child would have heard that. Um, man and, and woman, Adam and his wife were a Rome. I don't say it right because I can't do the the R, can't do it. So there's an R, there's like a rolled R in there. So they would, they would hear um, Adam and Eve, man and woman, husband and wife were Arom, and oh, I kind of did, and, and they felt no shame. That's what the Hebrew child would, would hear. And, and the, the word translated naked is this Hebrew word Arom, and it's used to mean um, naked, exposed, laid bare. It's like a very vulnerable word. It conveys the idea that nothing is hidden between two people. It's the word that is used when God looks at us. There's nothing that we can hide from God. That's scary, is it not? Uh, God knows everything about, like every secret we have is just laid bare before him. And that's the idea of Arom. It, it's that there's nothing, there's nothing separate. You are together, you are naked, you are exposed. I know all your secrets, you know all my secrets. There is nothing that we have hidden between us. There is no pretense, there is no facade. We are just exposed to one another. We go, okay, preacher, that's a, that's a good um, word lesson. What, what does it have to do with the story? Well, if you're a Hebrew child and you're sitting at your grandfather's feet and you hear um, Adam and Eve were Arom and they felt no shame. And then let me tell you the rest of the story in Genesis chapter three, where it says this, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God has made. Did you get the connection? between verse 25 and verse one? No? You don't see it? <laughs> you, you shouldn't. It's, it's because it's not there in the English. But if you were a child sitting at your grandfather's feet, what you would have heard in chapter three, verse one is, is this. Now the serpent was more Arom than any of the other beasts that God had made. And you would go, uh, Grandpa? <laughs> the serpent was naked? <laughs> is that what you just said? <laughs> The serpent was naked? Because Adam and Eve were naked and they felt no shame and now you're saying that the serpent was naked. And you're like, uh, secondly, uh, I've never known a serpent who wore clothes. 
so obviously the serpent would be naked. Like that doesn't make any, any sense to me. Okay. Arom and Arom. They're virtually almost indistinguishable. They come from the same root word, only this time, the way it's used in verse three, uh, or chapter three, verse one, is completely opposite of the way it's used in chapter two, verse 25. See, the base meaning of the word is naked, exposed, uh, vulnerable. There's nothing hidden, nothing between. But the way it's used in chapter three, um, verse one, means concealed, crafty, hidden, covered. So it's a word that means different things depending on how it's used. In one way, it can mean naked. In another way, it can mean concealed. In, in, in one sense, it's an open book. And in the other sense, it's hard to pin down. And so that we're supposed to connect these things. I think the writer uses this word on purpose so that we understand that chapter 2, verse 25 is directly connected to chapter 3, verse 1. It's supposed to bring them together, and I think it brings it together in more ways than one because Adam and Eve were naked and they felt no shame. They were exposed to one another. There was nothing hidden between them. I, 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 think, about, I think about it this way. Um, and and, and this, is a, this is a good reason why kids are on the other side of the building this morning, okay? This PG-13 moment. When you, uh, let's just assume that um, the first time you see your spouse naked is when, after you get married. Can we just pretend that's truth today? That's the way it is. Um, when you see your spouse, when you are naked together for the first time, are you not exposed? <laughs> Do you not feel completely vulnerable in that moment? It is not just a physical thing, but it is absolutely an emotional thing. Are they gonna like what they see? Am I gonna like what I see? What's going on? You are completely exposed and vulnerable in that moment. And I think that's the point of what's going on. Adam and Eve were naked. They were completely exposed. They had no secrets and they felt no shame. They were able to just be who they are with one another and they didn't have to worry about it. They didn't have to worry about, is she gonna accept me? Is he gonna accept me? Is she gonna like me? They were just together and it was this beautiful thing. And then look what happens. The serpent was naked and he had no shame. The serpent didn't have those same feelings. In fact, when the serpent shows up on the scene, he intentionally hides, he intentionally misdirects, he intentionally keeps secrets. Adam and Eve have nothing to be ashamed about. They are completely open and honest with each other. And then the snake shows up, the serpent shows up, and he's a completely different beast. That's the point that I think is trying to be made here. And I agree with Marty Solomon, who says that it's at least possible, and this you got to change the way you think, it's at least possible that the serpent looked a whole lot more like a human than a snake. When Adam and Eve see the serpent in the garden, we're going to talk about it more in just a second. When he sees a serpent in the garden, I don't think she sees a snake. I think she sees somebody who looks really, really human. In fact, I think maybe the snake fancies himself a better version of Adam. I think he might be stronger. I think he might feel like he's a better option. Hey, Eve, 
why are you hanging out with that guy when you got to have all of this? I, I, I think that's what's going on in the story. And so at this point, the serpent comes up. He looks a whole lot like Adam, and he is, but he is not being completely naked, truthful with Eve. He's being sneaky. He's intentionally trying to mislead Eve and misdirect her into acting just like every other beast. And there's this idea that the serpent is there going, what makes you and Adam so special? What makes you able to rule over all the other beasts of the field like me? I think the serpent serpent comes as kind of a representative of the rest of the animals, and he says, I've got a better option. Eve, if you pick me, we can rule over everything. Eve, if you pick me, you're just another beast. Let's make our own rule world. Let's make our own rules. Um, By the way, beasts in the garden did not have to follow the same rules that Adam and Eve did. God didn't say to any of the other beasts, you can eat from any of the trees in the garden except this tree. Beasts got to eat from any tree they wanted to, apparently. There's no direction given to them. And I think it's, again, possible that Eve sees the serpent eating the fruit of the forbidden tree, and, and maybe he's just kind of leaned up against it. Maybe he's kind of, you know, got a shoulder. And he's munching down. He's like, hey, Eve, got something to tell you. And she's like, wait a minute, what are you doing? You can't eat that. You can't touch that. But he's a beast. He doesn't have the same rules. Okay. Um, <laughs> the serpent is uh, like munching away on, on this fruit, perhaps, and he, he, asks, he asks Eve um, this question. Uh, it's the second part of the verse. He says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So he's eating the tree. He's leaning up against it. He's touching it. He's rubbing it, maybe scratching his back. I don't know. And Eve looks at him. And she's like, what? how can he do that and we can't? do that. And then he says, uh, Hunt takes a bite. And he says, did God actually say you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden? Which is not what God says. And so there's this back and forth between Eve and the snake. And it's a little bit of true. And it's a little bit of, of not true. Like God did not say they couldn't eat from any tree in the garden, just this one particular tree that maybe they were standing next to or under at the moment, and so Eve tries to correct him. And she says, no, God, God said we could eat from any tree in the garden. We just can't eat from this tree. And then she adds this thing, and we don't know where it comes from, but she adds, we can't even touch it or we'll die. And again, that doesn't make sense to me unless the serpent is hanging out at the tree eating a piece of fruit. And he goes, I'm not dead. <laughs> what makes you different? Why do you have different rules? I can eat the fruit. The beast says, um, takes another bite, and he says, you're not going to die. <laughs> you're not going to die. And it's kind of hard to argue with, because what happens? Eve and Adam eat the fruit, and do they die? Nope. Not for a long time, anyway. Not for a few hundred years. <laughs> like they live a long time after this thing they're supposed to do that's supposed to kill them. Except you read the end of the story in chapter 3, and, and what happens? Adam and Eve have to leave the garden, not because God is angry with them. We're going to talk about this next week. Not because God is angry with them, but because God says, look, 
they had made their choice. They have chosen this other tree. We cannot let them back in to eat the tree of life and live forever. Adam and Eve aren't kicked out of the garden because God hates them and he's angry with them. They're kicked out of the garden so they can't get back to the tree and live in sin for the rest of eternity. It's a big difference there. And so what happens is the second law of thermodynamics comes into play when Adam and Eve eat the tree. And the second law of thermodynamics, if you're a science nerd, says that everything is trending toward chaos and disorder. That's why when you make something out of iron and you clean it up and you use it, eventually it begins to rust. That's, that's why our bodies are doing the things that our bodies do that we hate. Because we're tending toward destruction and disorder. And so Adam and Eve didn't die that day, but their bodies got on a path that would lead them to death instead of a path that kept them alive. Okay, that was for free. Uh, <laughs> but but I, want you to, I want you to look at this. Um, chapter three, verse six. The woman saw that the tree was good for food. How would she know that? Unless the serpent was standing in front of her eating it. She wouldn't, there's no way for her to know that unless the serpent is eating it going, hmm, yum, this is pretty good, fills me up. She saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes. So this is, she's visually, she's going, look, looks good. Obviously it is good because he's enjoying it. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So I'm going to know things that I didn't know before. So she took its fruit and she ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her. And he also ate. And Eve knew that God said not to eat the fruit from this particular tree. But when she saw the beast maybe touching the tree, perhaps eating the fruit, and he didn't drop dead, she began to question God. Did God tell us the truth about this tree? Is God hiding something from us? We thought that God was naked, a room with us, that, that he was exposed, that he was vulnerable, he's always telling the truth Maybe he's not. Do you see how that changes? All of a sudden, she begins to question if God is really being truthful about this tree because the serpent seems fine. The fruit looks good. I'd like to have wisdom. We all know the outcome, right? Eve takes the fruit and she eats it. She gives some to Adam. And they do gain this knowledge of, of things that they didn't have before. But listen, they immediately and eternally regret that decision. If they could give anything to go back and say to the serpent, nope, not going to do it, they would, they would do it. They would change the outcome. And, and the, the same is true for you and I, right? If we could go back to that point where we got off the path, where we took that first drink or we took that first smoke and and everything began to change, and not for the better? Wouldn't we, wouldn't we want to go back and change that? This is the thing with, with evil. Here's the deal. E evil always undermines God's authority and elevates our autonomy. Evil always undermines God's authority and elevates our autonomy. 
This is the trick since the very beginning with the serpent and Eve. Evil causes us to think we're missing out on something like God is holding back. Evil says, don't listen to what God says from the outside. Don't listen to what God tells you. Listen to how you feel, what God is saying to you on the inside. Didn't God give you these feelings? Didn't God place that desire and that passion with inside you? Doesn't God want you to be happy? That's a big one, right? God wants me to be happy, and so this makes me happy. But it also happens to undermine God's authority and elevate my autonomy. Why would God put, this is a, this is a new one that's come out in the last decade or so. Why would God put these feelings inside me and then tell me I can't act on them? That seems cruel and unusual. Why would God do that? And all of these thoughts are just the beast. Did God really say not to eat from any of the trees in the garden? Surely he didn't mean it. You're not going to die if you just break this one rule. Everything's going to be okay. Evil always seeks to undermine God's authority, God's ability to make the rules, God's ability to set the agenda, to provide the purpose, to specify the parameters. And at the same time, elevate our own autonomy. You're the boss. You can do whatever you want. If it feels good, why wouldn't God want you to do it? And that simply places me above God. I get to be my own God. And what I want you to get today is this. Don't buy the lie. Just like Eve and Adam Death may not come suddenly, but it will come eventually. And until then, evil wants you to feel excluded from God's goodness and outside of his blessing and protection and far from intimacy with him. This is the picture of Adam and Eve in the garden. We're going to talk about it a little more next week. But what happens, Adam and Eve have to leave the garden because they can no longer eat from the tree of life that would cause them to live because now there's sin. And God says there has to be an end to that. And so they get separated from God. And they're separated physically because they're no longer in the garden But the story that we see in the rest of Genesis is that God keeps coming to them. He keeps walking with them, just like he did in the garden. He goes, hey, how you doing? How you doing? But they felt farther and farther and farther away from God. And that's what evil wants you to do. He wants you to feel like Adam and Eve felt when they left the garden. And don't buy it. You are not a beast. You are better. And when God looks at you, he says, oh, She is very good. He is very good, just the way I designed him to be. Uh, Let me just leave you with this. The grass is not just less green on the other side of the evil fence. The grass won't grow. Let's pray. God, thanks for loving us in in spite of us. And Father, we, we want to look at Adam and Eve and, and, and we want to go, man, if it were me, I would have said no to the serpent. And, and yet, I, in my own life, far too many times I have said yes to that very same evil. And, and so God, I just hope that you will help us this week 
again, to see that we're, we're not beasts. We are not supposed to be ruled by our passions and desires. We're to rule over them. Really, God, I hope that we would see the tricks that evil uses. I, that, like the, it's the same with the serpent. We look at things in the world and the, and the world says, hey, why wouldn't God want you to do it? God really say that? Come on, just give it a try. It won't kill you. And while we cannot be separated from you, we absolutely feel separated. And just like Adam and Eve, we get to this point where we have to hide who we are from you because we're ashamed of the things that we've done and the lies that we've believed. And so help us, Father, to see past the charade, to recognize that evil is not naked, it is not truthful. There's always something hidden there that is going to enslave and ensnare us. And so help us, God, to trust you, to trust your authority, your ability to make the rules, even when they don't make sense in our life. And when we do that, we'll find that you make a garden where there once just a mess. So we thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name.